On this week's Bet the Process podcast, Rufus and I are joined by a bookmaker of legendary uh, background, Adam Bjorn, who is now breaking into the US market. So that's exciting. And then we have a lot of conversation about golf and Rufus even talks a little bit about golf modeling. So with that, let's start the process. Bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not the typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast where Rufus is a new homeowner. Is, is that official now? Are we excited about that? No, not yet. But you're like I, running I, around. I'm still a homeowner, but... but You're like a multi-homeowner, right? You got one in the Caymans. You got one in Vegas. You're now about to have one in New York. Two in Vegas. Two in Vegas. One in D.C. One in D.C. So you, you're just a slumlord, basically. Do you rent all these out or what do you do with them? I rent... Well, every property that I'm not living in is a rental property, is become a rental property. I never, I mean, I have this stuff with business partners. That's the Cayman thing and the North Carolina ones. That's just business stuff. But, but I bought a place in Vegas in 2011 for $60,000, which is insane to think about. That How much did you buy for? 59500 It had sold in 2006 for 242000 And now I'm like, why didn't I buy like multiple of these? But about that in 2011, that's a rental property and it's gone like quadrupled in value. Um, so that was just getting, you know, right place, right time. Um, and so that's when, when we call it a house, like a property, it's like, you know, it's cheaper than a lot of cars. A lot of cars you drive. I wouldn't drive a car that no, expensive. I don't, you know me, I drove the, I drove <laughs> the shit mobile for literally years. until I died. Literally yeah. until I died. Um, did you have a tilted moment of the week? How did your golf end up for you? Did you have a lot of shares of Victor Hovland, I hope? No, we had Hovland matched up against Fleetwood, which won, but we bet we really liked Scheffler going into uh, the final round. And we, we actually had a little bit of Scheffler outright pre-tournament. Like we were able to get snag a plus 850, but we really liked Scheffler at plus 130. I think we made him like plus 109 going into the final round. So we loaded up there and he did not get the job done. That was surprising, huh? You, in, the, in the world that he was sit, where he was sitting, I think with like, I don't even remember, because I was like oh, at the tangentially turn? paying attention because I, I had home a pre-match. So I was like pretty excited after day two and then not so excited after that seven. Yeah, that triple bogey. And what, ha- what happened on that? I was only like watching. Did you see what happened? What did he do? Because he was I, like- that, in- was, that was one yeah. of the few things I watched. Um, I saw he- out of the rough, tried some sort of bump and run up a steep slope and it didn't get up and it came back to him. And then, then a, a chip onto the green and then a three putt. Something Got it. Like that. So it wasn't very complicated, just that his first approach was a little bit too, a little bit too aggressive. Sounds like. Yeah. And his around the green and putting skills were not up to snuff on that particular hole. But yeah, Hovland yeah. had, Hovland had one of the all time back nines. I mean, insane. Seven under, yeah, on the back. That's that that, and he was just 
a guy like a guy like Victor, when he gets dialed in, it just feels like everything. I mean, it's kind of like Scheffler in a way. We're just hitting everything to like five feet. When you um when you look at going into this week with these people starting with leads and things like that, how, how do you model the the leads? Like, I mean, I know you do this all the time, anyways. But like pre match is is there any difference? I guess. Well, so the, I guess the one interesting complicating factor could be like, is there some sort of pressure difference going into the first round? Because you're never modeling that. Like we have effective pressure and position stuff like that, aside from just simply. Um, weather right because guys playing later on sundays typically are going to be the top of the leaderboard um we don't this is kind of the only time you really ever have that where somebody's starting a tournament with a 10 stroke well not a 10 stroke lead but 10 strokes ahead of, of other people so i i treat i treat it kind of the same in that regard the interesting thing is for the final round or two how to deal with the fact that like how much the guys overperformed and then, and then being able to separate the pressure point, like aspect of that or, or the, the, the leaderboard aspect of it. Um, so that's not a great answer, but uh, I think it is one of these unique events and normally an event like this, where you have, everybody's played the last, what, three weeks now before, or I guess only two weeks, but, and played the same course. And so, when you have that kind of, when you have a situation like that, there tend to be fewer edges just because essentially there's fewer little things that, that people can get wrong. Right. Like, and so like rest, you know, um, freshness, et cetera. But there's just much I more consistency, that, right? So it's interesting. That's an interesting. Yeah, no, right. Cause if everybody's dealing with the same circumstances, then, you know, it's, right. it's pretty easy to, to like, yeah. To figure out, although that if you do have a matter. contrarian take, maybe there's a really, really good opportunity to be contrarian, right? How so? Well, because like, you know, if you think about all the different little edges that might come from analyzing a European tour differently, or a, you know, like or a like rest differently, or something like that. But if if, if someone has a very contrarian point of view on interpreting the results of the last two tournaments. Going into today, you would think that that would be, you know, because more of the crowd is on the same page. If you are contrarian, like that's there, there's okay. So you could almost say, okay, I can isolate this one factor and say, like, I, I this is my I, bet. It's yeah, okay, that makes sense. Like you could say that I think this course, these two courses profiled really poorly for this player, and I expect that his numbers were dragged down because of that. Something like that. I, I don't know. Maybe I, it's I think just, it's Europeans an interesting... play well in Georgia. I don't know. Well, it's kind of like that's um, not something I've looked at, by the way. It's kind of like in the in the um, the NBA playoffs, right? It's the it's the one seven game series that you know you don't have a lot that changes. I, I think the that hockey is different because it's so goalie dependent. And baseball is different because there's a starting pitcher and all that changes, but like basketball, like you have this. And and so at the end, there's just some consistent themes that sort of happen at the end, like scoring goes down in series is, and I don't know, you just, I, I, I had never thought about this run up to um, East Lake, but um, it'll be interesting. I, I would assume then that like Scotty will be the pejorative favorite. Yeah, I, I haven't, I actually, 
pejorative. Um, I don't think that's the right word. Sorry. No, nah, well, I don't know. <laughs> terrible. Is, terrible. That, that's that's a big MIT word. Yeah. I'm gonna. I, I'm finishing that up once we we finish recording here, but I will say that I do think in general people undervalue how much a stroke matters. Yeah. So we, we said that before. Do you, yeah. do you, do, I mean, do your you, models if you, if you, go you as at, think about, you can bet stuff like a few U S books offer live tournament matchups, for example. And so some guy who's up by, you know, two strokes on another guy going into the final round of the tournament, you know, there's a live tournament matchup and you can, you can see based on those lines, just how much uh, those two strokes are worth. And, and oftentimes there can be some value where, where there is value often is, is, on the favorite, although because you know you make something, I make it minus three seventy, and it's minus three forty. I mean, you're not getting a huge, huge edge, but but that's that's where I tend to find value on those types of things. And I think I think this week is no different, or is going to be no different, or at least it historically hasn't. Got it. Do you when you think about this whole idea of like Scheffler, you have two factors. It sounds like how much they're up, and then you also have just like how the player performs with pressure. So essentially you have a, almost like a combined model that tells you an individual player with a certain lead, what their like regression will be versus other players. Is that correct? Um, a, There's a little bit of individual factor there, but, but it's, I mean, overall, is there enough guys, sample size to have that much, I guess. Right, I mean, that's the thing. So, yeah. so it's, it's, it's not exactly like, Oh, this is their historical number. It's like, how much is their difference from expectation? Uh, like how much are they over underachieved in these circumstances and how much, how predictive is that? And that varies from thing to thing. And I think historically I've said, I haven't found a ton of sort of the whole clutch thing there. That doesn't mean I don't think clutchness matters. I, I, as somebody that has watched a lot of golf, I truly believe it does matter, but I've found it very hard to quantify in a, in a meaningful way. And the stuff I have, the effects I have quantified that have some sort of predictive value or like the predictive value is so small to be rather insignificant. But I think what's interesting is the fact that will will somebody like Scheffler who starts the tournament at 10 under play differently than he normally would in a first round? Is he going to be playing less aggressively? Or, you know, it's it's almost like think about Think about a guy who starts the fourth round with a six-stroke lead. He's probably not going to be playing the same game he would have if he was tied for the lead. And if it's an easy course, he's probably going to underperform because of that. If it's a hard course, maybe not, but just because he's going to play it safe. And so obviously we're not in the same situation there, but I do think, I, I do wonder if he will sort of modify his his play at all just due to that. It may, it may be part of some that's just being tighter. I mean, I think Rory is a great example of a guy who, when he's in the lead, he tends to, he just tends to not be the same player. And I can't say this quantitatively, but this is just from having so many bets on Rory over my career and over Rory's career that, you know, I mean, you've seen that too, right, Jeff? Of course. Of course. It's, I mean, and, and I think everybody, like with the lead, it's hard to play with the lead unless your name's Tiger Woods. Yeah. Um, so I, my last question to you, and then we can, we're going to welcome in Adam Bjorn, who um, has a pretty storied history as a bookmaker and is now entering the United States. Um, but I, um, 
I made this statement to someone when we were playing golf on Friday that I feel like Max Homa is close to finally winning one. And that was like winning a big one. And he said to me, well, he's won the, the Genesis at Riviera. And he's like, that's a big one. And I'm like, I don't consider that a big one. Yeah, he's well, underperformed in majors big time. Well, what would you consider to be, and, and you consider winning the FedEx I mean, a Riviera big one? Riviera is my, a big event. It's not a major. Right, I, but don't it, you think that, that, my question is, do you agree with that statement that he hasn't won one of the big ones yet? And in my mind, the big ones are the majors, the players, and the FedEx Cup at this point. I think you could make that argument that th- those are all bigger than the Genesis. But I would say after after that, and I guess I don't I don't know where you fit WGC events in there. Like I don't think they're any more important than than something like um Riviera or you know any of the elevated Bay events Hill now are pretty big because they have Hill, a big right, the elevated have, ones. They have, yeah, they have a big have they have a big field. Newer field village, right? Like yeah. those events. What's interesting, yeah. actually, is I've been kind of a longtime Homa fader, as you know. Yeah, Jeff. I know you have. I remember. We that. actually had some bets on him the last few weeks. That seems like it happened like two weeks ago. We had a matchup though. on him. What? That seems like it happens a reasonable amount where you just are been right. a fader of a guy, and then the market kind of like overcorrects, and then all of a sudden you become, you know, uh, on that person, or vice versa. I mean, eventually. I don't think there's anybody that I've, I guess Rory a little bit and Rom to some extent, but, but there was a time when I was anti-Rom before I was pro-Rom and now I'm not pro-Rom. What's wrong with Rom, by the way? That's a good question. I mean, you always tell me that he's a very simple short and he has an ability to figure out what's wrong with it because it's so What's wrong with Justin Thomas? He's... I mean, the Justin Tom... And this was the other argument I got into with this guy. We got an argument about whether Thomas should really be in consideration for the Ryder Cup, I think you should. You do well, just like it'll, because it'll make Jordan I think he, happy. I, well, no, I mean, he, somebody made an argument that that a guy like Ian Poulter, even if he's having a down year, you'd want the European tour. The European um, team would would pick him. Right, in the past they have. He's been a captain's pick, even when he would not have been somebody you would choose just based on how he like his current form and performance that year alone, because he's such a good match play player. and such a good Ryder cup player. And JT is like, I think 16 and five in team events, like Ryder cup president's cup and the U S has kind of struggled in this format. So I don't know. I mean, I can see an argument. I don't, I don't know if it, there's no clearly defined criteria as far as I know. So you want to have the, you want to, have the team that gives you the best chance of winning, right? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Or is it about I mean, is I'll, it about rewarding the guys that are well, No, I think no. you want to have I think you want to have the it's not an exhibition, right? Or is it an exhibition? I don't know. I, I I'll tell you this, I would not choose Lucas Glover though. Yeah, I know. You're anti Lucas Glover. No, I'm not anti Lucas. No, but my this the Ryder Cup's not happening for another month. He's been hot for like a month. Okay. Plus a little bit, maybe. You know, if 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 it was next week, then you could make a better argument for Glover. Okay, he's forty three. He's going to be forty three. He's a, a man. Month. He's a man. He's going to be the 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 aging curve is going to get him even more than the other people in the next month. The aging curve is getting me. Um. Yeah. All right. Well, the aging Let's... curve is getting you. 
Okay. Let's welcome in Adam Bjorn and we'll talk to you guys all again next week. We now welcome in Adam Bjorn to the Bet the Process podcast. Adam, for those of our seven listeners that don't know who you are, who are you? Uh, well, I mean, it's been a long journey. It's almost 30 years that I've been in this business now. Um, I mean, I've been betting on horses back home in Australia since I was, the earliest ones I remember are like 10 or 11. I remember betting on the uh, 1988 Australian Cup, um, backed a big winner there. So I would have been 12 then. Um, but again, generally just started as a better, straight out of high school, got onto the bookmaking side and have sort of just, you know, journeyed from there. Um, you know, accumulated through multiple countries, multiple time zones uh, and just learned very on. Again, I think the more I look back on it, as a, degen a degenerative gambler, I kind of grew up in the right time and with a bit of math skill, um, just took advantage of being able to arbitrage across jurisdictions before the internet really uh, helped bookmakers out. So if you go back to Australia, I think it's interesting because the cultural differences and now that you're kind of breaking in to the, to the US, yeah. what like large macro cultural differences do you see between the US and Australia, right? And and how does that shape how you think about the, the industry or catering to the industry? Yeah, for me, the more I'm hearing and seeing as, you know, the US opens up and expands, it's ingrained in our culture. Like we get days off school for horse races. You know, the Melbourne Cup, you always got Tuesday, first Tuesday, November off school. Um, you know, we had bookmakers standing up at the tracks. So then you've got your fixed odds. Uh, you had your toad options as well. I think just, uh, you know, for me in particular, my dad owned some horses and he was always at the pub betting. And I think a lot of us that come from the UK and Australia, it just culturally was ingrained into us of some level. Now, not many of us took that, you know, figuratively and sort of spent our whole lives doing it. Um, but I think generally it's just, it's much more accepted than especially the US, um, but other cultures around the world as well. And I think, you know, even coming to this side of the world when I was based in Jamaica, again, I'm betting into sports books that, you know, for Americans, they're gray or, you know, for me, they were just other sports books. Like there was nothing wrong with betting into places in the Curacao or Costa Rica or Antigua because... For me, it was just another sports book around the world, and I came from that culture where we bet. Do you think that that's going to change? Like, the, do you think the U.S. is going to gradually see that? And I guess we've already kind of seen that, right? Like, I mean, I think you're probably an example of that at some level, right? That 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 things are changing a little bit in terms of perception. Bits and bits and pieces, but I even got into a discussion this week where, you know, I think in ten or twenty years, you will have people that again were born or at high school. And and again, we had teachers that, you know, would teach us math through horse racing, dividends. You know, when I take my, my kids to the track, you know, again, looking at the tote board and understanding, you know, the aspect of the math side of it. And again, that was probably very taboo for Americans and the way they looked at it. But I think that'll transition over where, again, looking at the point spreads and things like that will become more of, you know, ingrained in culture, I guess, growing up. Interesting. 
Um, so let's go into sort of general bookmaking questions. So you, you you have been a bookmaker or you have run sports books in the past, right? Like give me a little bit of your background actually running the 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 bookmaking side of sports books. Right. So again, when I started as a ticket writer, junior ticket writer in Australia, um, and then moved to a actually US based company in Australia, but again, it was me and one other that were taking all the bets. It was all phone business. which eventually turned to internet but the, he had a guy that would come in he'd get his nickel limit and we knew to move the line because again this was before don best before sports signal and things like these so, so that kind of again the, the book i worked for in australia he was a guy that took all kinds of bets didn't limit anybody of that nature so that gave me the confidence in both bookmaking and betting i also realized that i was a much better gambler better when i was working so I'd take a few stints where I just said, I'm just going to bet. And, you know, it wasn't as successful when I was sitting behind a screen, watching all the action come in, knowing where to push it all out. Uh, and then just in general, you're getting more information, you're more disciplined. And then, you know, I worked in 12 to 14 sports books in Australia before I left there. Uh, you know, I was working at one place on a Saturday for my rent, um, three or four others for different reasons. And then sort of uh, October 2000, I emailed about 150 sports books and through a friend of a friend ended up in Jamaica with Spiro at the Greek. Uh, and again, learning a completely different culture this side of the world, the way people bet, the things that they bet. But having had that advantage of that US sports book in Australia coming across and then now getting on this side of the world and seeing that the weaknesses in the Australian and the European sports transitioned that, you know, I spent probably 10 or 15 years working night shifts because that was the weakest time to sort of work on both sides of the world. Um, and then from that, you know, the bookmaking aspect, I've worked for people that have let me do what I do. So towards the end, when I was working at the Greek with Spiro, I maybe spoke to him three or four times a year. We'd have a bad result. He'd called me up. And I'd say, you know, what, why the position was it, what it was, and that's it. That'd be the end of it. So I've had the freedom to do what I want to do as a bookmaker, which is kind of being a betting bookmaker, where I would sometimes position um, books, uh, ledgers, in a sense of where I wanted to be through betting, and then letting the action and the liquidity sort of build up from there and really leaning where I wanted to and take aggressive positions or where I just wanted to book it square and just, you know, use the players and the profiles to kind of build that position of where to write it out. Um, and then from there, it's, I mean, the whole thing's changed with live betting because now the pregame really doesn't matter because you're writing as much, if not more, in the live and that can completely change your pregame position. So the evolution of this whole thing, having started with, you know, pen and paper in 95 to what everyone's seeing now, um, it has just been leaps and bounds, uh, you know, across the, across the world. So what markets then do you, and I don't, I would guess that you don't really fear any betters, but what, what markets do you fear the, the most as a bookmaker or what, that you, you think about? having the most value or hardest to protect? Yeah. 
it's the low-hanging fruit, the window dressing, you know, the stuff that I, I don't mind having small limits on. Um, you know, this gets into a, a cross-culture argument as well of, you know, fearing betters and stuff like that. Like, the reason I don't fear generally American betters, you know, even the Billy Walters, et cetera, is because your markets are really a lot more efficient than the rest of the world. You know, when I first started, guys betting on Aussie rules or tennis or soccer, football, you know, these were inefficient markets and these guys were, you know, in their 40s and 50s and had been ingrained again in this culture, um, poker players, backgammon players, etc. So they knew where to get the information from before the bookmakers really understood. Now, you, soon enough, you learn that you have, you know, for cricket, you have the phone number for the groundskeeper or you get, you know, phone numbers for scoreboards so you can get conditions and, and getting team lineups early and things like this. Again, pre-internet, but these guys were pre-pre-internet of the information world. So that sort of, you know... I respected that kind of player a lot more. And then I get over this side of the world and I hear of, you know, three or four names, especially Billy. And it was seeing their stuff, their margins that they're trying to beat are so small. Um, even today, like the the really good betters are looking for like two, three percent edges. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, it was 10, 15 percent edges that the lines were moving and, and the closing line value per se was just a lot more marginal. So these days, again, it's not it's not about fearing it, but again, it's respecting the money where it's coming in. And it's it's the same markets that the advantage players are all looking for. The the player props, you know, they're weak and inefficient. Lower league soccer's, um, you know, lower league tennis, uh, your WNBAs and things like that. When, when you so, think about those markets and like why they're inefficient or why there's opportunities, is there like clearly in the 10 to 15% edge range, that's like a lot of that's information asymmetry, right? And information that's not in the market, but like these other markets that you're talking about that are thin, why can't you guys just automate that stuff to create more or like where, where is the inefficiency coming from there? Well, again, a lot of that is automated and it's coming from one or two originators that are crap. But again, we put that in just to have the product there. There's not the liquidity really to go and spend, you know, hundreds of hours building models or attacking them in a certain manner because generally your recreational players aren't really playing that stuff. It's more of uh, arbitrages or pros or semi-pros that are really tackling those markets. And it's not really worth the time and effort to go and, you know, model everything so some of it you just plug in, you know there's leakage, and the idea is just, again, on liquidity and info of dealing with those ones in the main markets and then just reducing your leakages on the, the lower markets. How do you think uh, Prime Sports is going to treat these markets like props? And, and given that in the U.S., recreational bettors love the same game parlays, love the carnival game type things, which are generally reliant on these small markets. Right, and the same game parlays, we're not going to have that as we open. Um, cash outs is another thing that I don't think will be ready when we open. Um, but having all that window dressing at some point will be there. Uh, initially, as we roll it out, it'll be very tight, high-line stuff. 
Of course, we'll have some NFL props and, and different things like that. But it's going to be concentrated on everybody getting a fair bet. And if that fair bet's $250 versus them getting $0.25 cents somewhere else, then it's $250. If it's $500, if it's 1000 if it's 10000 you know, so be it. We'll work that out as we go along. But, you know, I know it's been pumped that it's going to be the high limit shop and these things. It's not. I mean, it's going to be fair limits. It's going to be controlled in the beginning because, again, they can't afford to blow their load in the first six months. And just, again, giving people fair limits and real bets on real markets and then adding some of that window dressing uh, as we go along. Yeah, I mean, is it better? I don't... I don't start modeling some market and then immediately start firing $100,000 bets in there. You know, you sort of, right. you build slowly. Um, and that's but- going to be the exact same on the other side because liquidity is the king in this business. And until, you know, they have $1 and they have $10 and then 100 and 1000 you know, they need to be smart about it. And that's kind of where we come in. You mentioned before how much more efficient markets are now in the US than they were 10 to 15 years ago. Um, I guess globally, what would what impact has legalization in the U.S. had on that sort of journey towards market efficiency? Well, what I was really saying was the U.S. sports, NBA, NFL, even the colleges to an extent, have been a lot more efficient for decades versus tennis, Aussie rules, rugby's, uh, even soccer's kind of thing. Um, I think the efficiency of it is. You know, there's a lot more people doing it now. Um, but again, we're not really seeing what the real market is because there's so many limitations. Um, you know, we hear lots of stories, but then, you know, I know from experience, there is still people getting on. There is still people getting decent limits in some spots, whether it's been oversight or there's an agreement in place or, you know, could be any number of many things. Um, it's definitely especially on like the lower hanging fruits. I think the WNBA, the player props and some of those things have got a lot more efficient because there's a lot more people doing them. So again, if you're taking bets, you're getting this information a lot quicker if you have the right player coming in and you understand, you know, their purpose and their edges on certain sports of letting them bet. And then that just becomes another piece of information. When you have, when you have some books, uh, some of the sort of, I don't, for lack of a better word, I mean, the European model sports books in the United States taking bigger limits than the market making books in certain areas. Um, I mean, I think that obviously translates to markets that can be manipulated. And, and have you seen anything in terms of like that actually sort of hindering market efficiency in any way? Um, I mean, a good example on that is, uh, has been tennis. You know, there's been a lot of manipulation on tennis pregame, again, because you can get so much on the live. So you can manipulate tennis in the wrong direction in, you know, it only takes two or three different books that you can hit it. You know, the limits are not that big. You can move it in the direction you want. And then when everyone goes live, you know, generally they all have the same limits, if not bigger. And then you can generally hit those things over and over and over. And it usually takes anywhere from three to five games for either the traders or the models to adjust. Um, so you've gotten on a lot more uh, than what you would have if you were just betting, you know, the way you did five, 10 years ago. Um, and, I, and I'm sure that's happening across other sports as well. 
Uh, and again, it's it's a matter of what you can see depending on what book you're in. There's a lot of stuff that we see out of Latin America with Bet Chris Latin America because they have walk-in shops and people can walk in with cash and place bets on certain things where our market can generally move, but the rest of the world stays still. So again, it's a matter of what you have access to internally and what you know what to do with those bets and that information to not give away the market, but understand you know where you want the bets coming on from potentially arbitrages or other parts of the world to build that knowing the information you have internally. So really a lot of it's just an internal game of what you're seeing and what you're not seeing. And that's why a lot of these conversations of, well, this book isn't doing that or this book's doing that, um, you don't really know unless you have that information and data inside. So let's move into what you're doing now. Tell, tell us a little bit what is Planet Tech. You've got this wonderful sign behind you that shows your logo. What are you guys and what are you doing in the U.S.? Right. So what Planet Tech was, it was a company co formerly called SafeBet um, that was operating out of the U.K. Uh, when PASPA come along, you know, the owner sort of saw an opportunity to redirect this a bit towards the U.S. while still looking at other markets around the world. Generally, one of my biggest problems in this industry has been the tech has been built by people that have never placed a bet or never taken a bet. So for years and years, you know, I would, wherever I, whatever building I was in in the world, I would walk to the techs' rooms, cuss and swear at them, walk back to where I was and keep doing what I was doing on the trading floor because they didn't seem to have the software working in a manner of, you know, protecting the house and, and things like that. Um, so the idea was to build the technology in the middle, sort of built by experienced betters, experienced bookmakers, uh, and then push this into the US uh, with Prime Sports. And I've, been, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of potential clients. They kind of come with the mold that we were looking for. Again, not worried about taking a bet, trusting us as the risk management team, um, understanding what our tech can and can't do. Again, it can't do everything. Uh, there is you know, deficiencies and things like that that are being worked on, but we ultimately control the tech. And I think in the long run, when you control the tech and you control how quickly it's all moving and having seen that for almost 30 years, it's being able to you know, move that in the direction you need to rather than most of these operators are sitting on third-party stuff and they might be at the end of the queue. And even if they're at the front of the queue that, you know, there's other things that the tech company needs to do. And having seen all of this now for the last four years, it's a lot harder than I suspected and have apologized to lots of developers and programmers over that time because, again, creating these beasts that we run, you know, millions of bets through uh, is, is a difficult, uh, difficult task. What is, what is Prime Sports exactly for those people who don't know? Right. So Prime Sports is a, is a brand in the U.S. that's going live in Ohio uh, early to mid-September and then Ottawa, New Jersey, not far behind then. Um, but like, you know, generally most companies have tech stacks like, uh, you know, there's a Camby, which is Planet Tech as a tech stack. And then Prime Sports is a brand like a DraftKings or FanDuel or Circa or Pinnacle or any of those ones. 
Uh, and again, ultimately, they're going in with the mindset of let's do this differently. You know, Amex white glove service, offer customers a fair limit and a fair bet, and then just build it from there. And so who's behind Prime Sports? And assumingly, like the this is your entry into the U.S. market. You guys have the technology behind Prime Sports. Um, and who who are they and like why did they get into this? Because they're not a known brand before this, are they? No. And again, they were throwing around a few ideas of different brands. Um, they're just people that have been in the market, uh, in the space in other areas. Um, you know, Joe Brennan being part of the PASPA repeal for a very long time of getting that through. He obviously wanted a part of, of doing something um, and then got the investors behind him to, to back the idea and then, you know, went out looking for tech and, and looking to what to sit on. And ultimately, you know, we met and had that conversation and convinced him to use us and, and do this going forward. That's exciting. So what, what are you most excited about over the next couple of years looking across the U.S. landscape? Taking bets. I, I just want to take bets. I want to take as many bets as possible because the more bets we take, the more liquidity we have. Um, the relationships, I think, that I've you know just built in this short term of, of not even being live. Um, you know, different people that live in different cities mm -hmm. and having conversations with them, whether they're professional or just recreational betters. And then initially my first stops at World Cup. I mean, 104 Super Bowls in 40 days. Um, you know, I'd like to be in sort of 10 to 12 states by then to really see what we've built and where we're at. Um, but I think, again, the next few years in the U.S. is, you know, there's a... A lot more carnage has happened a lot quicker than I expected. I thought this would be like six to eight years down the road towards the latter. And it, well, we're five years in and there's been a lot more um, than I expected. Some of the companies that I expected to have massive gambling databases that would thrive in this have failed and that surprised me. Um, I do think this will be very, very hard to, to get traction and do what we're trying to do. Uh, even the circus of the world, I don't think, you know, they're doing well in Nevada, but I don't think they've really transitioned to other states uh, like they have there. So, again, I look forward to kind of the grind, the hard work, um, and, again, just taking bets and, and getting an idea of what the market is and, and how it plays out and then adding states and expanding it out. Is Is the goal to be a very very large operator i mean obviously that would be great but but what would be what would qualify as a success in terms of like market share i mean yeah, that's i mean that's our biggest internal conversation is i think five to seven is a massive success for us you know if we can get three to four to five uh again depending how many states we have but even if we go you know state by state um you know for me the players are dk found you at the top won't really be moved. I think Bet365 will move up there. The MGMs and the Caesars, I think we may be able to compete with. Um, Fanatics, who knows? ESPN Bet, who knows? So again, even if we're sitting seventh or eighth in the in most states, uh, I think, again, we're, we're winning. Um, and ultimately, Wait, all these can I ask other... why? Why are you winning? I mean, whereas most of these other, I mean books in seventh or eighth place are not, I mean, eventually going to need to either be acquired or they're going right. to fold up shop. 
Yeah, because they're spending an ungodly amount on unnecessary advertising and customer acquisition. I mean, our product is our acquisition tool, um, our taking bets, that as well. Uh, right, Circa can say the same thing though, right? Right. And again, I think they're doing a good job in Nevada. I'm not sure if they have the the scope and the knowledge or the we're, – we're kind of going that path, but it's still very much different as well. Um, so, again, I know there is a state potentially by the end of the year or early next year that we both will end up in. Um, so, again, we'll get to kind of gauge where we're at. But, you know, I'm in no way saying this is a sure thing. I'm just – going to start on the bottom and, and build our way up and, you know, hopefully find some holes in the market that we can make the most of. What would you say would be the primary differentiator between yourselves and, and a book like Circa? I don't know if there'll be that much difference again, except maybe we'll be a, not necessarily the high limits that they're taking again. I'm not going to rush out with those things. I think there is some other sports that we'll be a lot better at, the soccers, the tennis, the crickets, the golfs, the rugbies, things like that. Um, I think there's a massive underserved market in the US for that expat sports and those niche sports. Um, I also, again, think that for every dollar you're seeing reported now in the US, there's at least another one or two dollars that's still going to unregulated markets. So we don't necessarily need to take market share off others to get market share. It might be just capturing, you know, being the bookies bookmaker where bookies need to lay off or do something um, and know that they can get their action down. The biggest thing is, again, building the relationships with players of, you know, what do they need? What are they looking for? Uh, and then, you know, going from there. Um, but again, between us and Circa, I think we're kind of running the same race. Um, but I do think we'll, there's those lesser sports and those, some of those niche sports that will attack a lot more than what maybe they have. Um, again, it might be just the understanding of main US sports that they know versus, you know, myself, again, not starting in this, but knowing that those are the big sports, but, you know, basketball globally, soccer globally, cricket globally are kind of the top three biggest bet sports. Um, so again, I, I think there's some niches in there to tackle. So people like Spanky have talked about how it's so difficult for U.S. bookmakers right now without automovers. Essentially, they're at such a technological disadvantage in terms of the actual bookmaking, like not building products, but like actually being able to trade properly. Um, what are, are, are you guys going to have an automover or are you going to differentiate yourself with in terms of the, you know, the, the trading technology? Uh, yeah, I think we're a step ahead on some of the trading technology than what the stadiums and a Camby and some of those ones that I've seen. Uh, we're not fully automated trading. I still think that models are great, but eyeballs are just as good. And the combination of the two, I think ultimately brings a better product as well. Um, you know, all those automover, I mean, I had an automover 20 years on the soft, 20 years ago on the software I was working on. So again, you know, I'm surprised that there's a lot of these key factors that other platforms or other operators haven't implemented yet. Um, but we do have plenty of levels of protection 
Uh, and again, why we can probably take bets on some of these smaller markets because we're more customer profiling and then offering the markets and then seeing, you know, how it plays out from there. So you you mentioned, and, and this is probably my last question, and then I have one other more fun question, but you mentioned a, a little bit about the recent ESPN news and, and, you know, there was a lot of people saying it like a, by a lot of people, I mean sort of the, the mainstream consumer saying that they thought that ESPN would be a, a major player and all this kind of stuff. And then there's a lot of people in the industry that are kind of poo-pooing that. But the comment that you made is is there's an opportunity if they but they have to really change their thinking a lot. And so what yeah. what would what do, what do you think that if you were to give them advice, what would the three things that you would tell them to do? Uh wipe out their full customer profiling to date and start again. Um, take more bets, you know, don't be so restrictive because they should be able to have, you know, build up the liquidity. And then, you know, having that ESPN brand and that, I mean, to me, the content in the US betting world today is just crap. Um, it's not as educational or directional With this, as... This podcast excluded though, right? Like of all course, the other, yes. All the other stuff. <laughs> Um, I just think there's a lot more that you can do with it. I know, you know, I'm learning more and more that Americans generally like the answer rather than doing the work. So that's why touts and all those kind of things do so well. Um, you know, I think that may evolve somewhat, while not as much as what I may have thought, you know, a few years ago. Um, but again, I, I just think that that's the same people running it. It's the same mentality. Um, they need to completely uproot what they're doing and the ideologies to compete. They're all selling vanilla ice cream right now. They've got to go out and sell, you know, some strawberry or chocolate to get market traction. Now, they're going to go and spend an ungodly amount as well to try and acquire players and get to this 20% market share threshold that, you know, was within the contract in three years. But, you know, I think having tools like that, like giving me or giving someone that's been in this industry of, the outside world and knowing, you know, taking bets and things like that, you get those tools and you can move the needle. Um, you know, I think someone like DraftKings, and I'm saying Fangio will do a little bit more of it, they have liquidity. There's no reason they couldn't up everybody's, you know, anyone that's under $5 bets, move them to a couple of hundred or 500, and they're going to get that liquidity, they're going to get that information. And then they can be more confident on people wanting 100,000, 200,000, things like this, because they know their number's right. So now they're not scared of the 99% people that should be allowed to just bet and put in a bucket to the side and ignored and then just concentrate on, you know, if you can break even with that 1%, I mean, you can make ungodly amounts of money. Now, you're probably going to lose to that 1%, but the value of that information versus what you can do with your lines and you know again if you have the profiling and the auto mover and a few things in place then you can just let it run on autopilot and really let those those other gamblers that are getting that shouldn't be limited um having a frictionless experience rufus you got one more question or are you good i'm good are you are we gonna ask uh adam the seven questions no i was just gonna ask him we could ask him the seven questions i guess we haven't asked those right away we have uh, the first one's who's uh, smarter, Rufus or Jeff? I think that's uh, self-explanatory. Is it really? I think in the betting world, again, I don't know your background well enough, but 
as a sports better, I'd give it to Rufus. That's definitely true. Who's funnier, Rufus or Jeff? Ooh. I don't know. I don't like, know that is, one. is there a neither is an option, right? Yeah, that one, I, I don't have a, a definitive answer for that one. It's a tough one. I, I think you have a bit more color, Jeff, than what Rufus does. But again, I've had some, hey, why some we interesting make it about conversations with Rufus over beers that, I, you know, he does have a sense of humor. He's pretty unintentionally funny, I think. So that's that's the reality of it. Um, what's the least relatable food that you like? Least relatable food. And I can explain to you the background behind this. Originally, um, we taught, we're talking, but there was one episode where we were talking about what we eat during games. And Rufus was talking about smoked canned mussels. And I was talking about black truffle potato chips. They're not then, canned. You keep saying canned. They were not canned. Were they tinned? No. They were fresh? They're smoked. So, so there's a food out there that you like that is not a relatable food that if you told people you like them, they would say like, Oh my God, that's not relatable at all. Oof. There's gotta be, I'm, I'm guessing Adam has a really good one here because of he's no, the, the one thing that I really like eating that generally people don't or in terms on the culture is curried goat. Seems like a thing recently where people just don't, you know, they think you milk them and get cheese and milk from them, but no, we eat them. Interesting. Curried goat. Yeah. We that. have a, we have a good answer. I knew we'd get a good answer. We get a good answer out of them. Um, and then uh, let's see, what, what are the other questions? What is the, um, well, what I, what I want to add to this group is, is what is the biggest bet you've ever made? Okay. So there's two that I can give there. One's an actual and one's a figurative in a sense of, again, when I emailed 150 sports books one night in October in Melbourne, uh, and ended up in Jamaica and have now spent the last 23 years on this side of the world. Um, and I don't think I would have been as successful not having the advantage of understanding that global mix of US markets and Aussie markets and having access to just unbelievable arbitrages and, and value, you know, from 2000 to 2010 kind of era. Uh, and then on the betting side, again, one of my best weekends is, uh, I believe it's 2004, I backed uh, Birdstone to win the Belmont at 83-1 to 1, uh, with Pinnacle uh, when they opened up after the Preakness. And the same weekend, I'd been back in Gaston Gaudio for about three months on Betfair at 200-1 to 1 or higher. I think the biggest odds was 400s. Uh, and he won the French Open that same weekend. So that one by far has been uh, my most successful weekend from the French Open win and the, the Belmont win with Birdstone. Uh Worst loss you've ever had? Uh, I don't remember the year. I just was getting into spread, uh, spread betting or index betting, uh, action points in the US terminology. And I backed a team that was... I think they were like 38-point favourites, which isn't unusual in Aussie rules. And they got beat by 70 or 80 points. Um, while it mightn't have been the biggest loss financially, that was probably the most devastating loss I've, I've had and remember. And just <clears throat> went to bed, curled up, and you know, woke up in the morning still feeling ill. 
Um, but that's the one that I, I remember the most. And that's, you know, 20 plus years ago, maybe 25 years ago. Person you'd follow blindly. Uh, person I follow blindly. Just in general or betting or? Anything you want, however you want to interpret it. Um, so I can give two. Uh, one, I have access to some some good uh, betting information, which while I don't get to bet it as much as I'd like to, uh, because I have to make sure that uh, the action gets down. There is uh, some golf that I see that I just I would follow blindly. Uh, if uh, you know, would just follow it to the end of the earth kind of thing. Uh, and then another one. Uh, on a personal level, I've been uh, spending some time with a guy, Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk, out of New York, New Jersey. And I think him, you know, some of his thought processes and that has just, over the last few years, has made me a much calmer and better person. Um, so, yeah, they're probably the, the two on the, the betting side and the life side. Then the last question is, favorite bet you are making in the next year? I mean, Prime Sports, it's as big as bad as I could ever make between that and Planetech. Everything's on the line. Um, you know, I've rolled up into everything I have into this venture. So this is it. This is the bet. Is it? Is that Kelly Optimal staking? It's all in. I've, I've, I'm an all-in better. I've never been a, a bankroll manager. Um, you know, my first 10, 15 years, my bankroll was in play every week. Uh, so it's, it's all in. All right. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be pulling for you. We obviously, uh, are big fans of what you guys are up to. So we hope it comes to fruition. So thanks for joining us. Cheers. Thanks guys. Body rankings, crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down, it seems like they don't get it. Puppet teaser, but the engine's running off a of leaded. None of it's organic, it all sounds synthetic. That's why I fucks with Jeff Ma and his dog Rufus. No locks of the year, they just tell you what their truth is. Maybe make your pockets fatter as the bookies get thinner. Give the information, turn and lose the betters into winners. Yeah. Sam Hahn, rapping rockers, Jeff Ma, Rufus Peabody, crunching all the numbers, Massy Peabody rankings, we're looking for the edge, analytically driven, crunching all the numbers.